Our topic tonight, Armageddon out of Revelation 15 and 16. Armageddon, the Euphrates River, and the seven last plagues. And really maybe should have put it the other way because we're going to be covering first in the order of the chapters, the seven last plagues, then the Euphrates River, and then Armageddon is how it, it comes out and reveals it going verse by verse. Okay, so let's jump into the verses. And well, actually, before we get into the seven last plagues, we need to look at the first set of plagues, the ten plagues in Egypt, to get that comparison, because again, Revelation is really just an expounding and a, a uh, re repetition of things that have already taken place. And the rest of the Bible explains Revelation for us. And so looking at this, when Moses came before Pharaoh and said, uh, the Lord God says, let my people go, Pharaoh's response was, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? So a denial of God denial of his power, I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And it's not that he didn't have opportunity, we were there in Egypt for hundreds of years. And he, had, he worshipped many gods, so he certainly had opportunity to say, oh, there's another god, you guys got another god? Well, tell me about him and I'll add him to my collection. And he chose not to know the God of Israel. He refused to know that God, because that God was telling him what to do. And that's not the type of God that he liked. He liked the God that he told what to do, and that uh, he was able to manipulate not one who is Lord and God, ruler over all. So he refused to let us go, and then God had Moses respond, in this you shall know that I am the Lord. You say you don't know who the Lord is? Well, I'm going to show you who the Lord is. And so by these plagues, and that's one of the purposes of the plagues, was to reveal who the real Lord is, who's the real master, who's the God over all gods. Because I didn't put the text up there, but the plagues were not on the Egyptians, they were not on the Pharaoh even, they were on the gods of the Egyptian, God showing that he is above all gods. And that thus he is the Lord. And so part of the reason for the plagues, both those and the future last day plagues, is to demonstrate who is the Lord, who is God over all, as the main purpose. And so the first plague, the river becoming the, the Nile River, they worship the Nile River, the river becoming flood, right? And so there's uh, Charlton Moses there, and uh, with, the, with the water of blood, and then comes the frogs, Frogs all over the place, frogs in the beds, frogs everywhere, frogs on your heads. And uh, so just frogs everywhere. The second plague, frogs. Third frog, third plague, the lice. And then after three plagues in a row, then a change takes place. And God says, and in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. So the first three plagues fell on all of Egypt, including the land of Goshen, where, where the children of Israel were relegated to. And so everyone received those first three plagues. Everyone, the waters were blood. Everyone, the uh, frogs were bothering. Everyone had the lice. Whether Egyptian or Israel, whether believer or unbeliever, they all received the first three plagues. But for the last seven plagues, and there's our parallel, the last seven plagues of this, he says, I will set apart the land of Goshen. I will set apart my people in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. Again, the purpose to show that I'm the Lord. 
and I'm able to do as I please. And I'm able to favor one and not favor another if I choose. I'm able to distinguish between one and the other. I'm in control of these plagues. I am in control of these frogs. I am in control of this lice. I am able to control the, fl the flies and tell them where to go and where not to go. And I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall be. So to demonstrate that he's able to separate, he's able to distinguish his people, those that follow him, those that have his sign and his seal, and those who are following the Pharaoh and following the false gods and following and, and resisting God. And there are those among the Egyptians who ended up following God, and then God would favor them as well. And so same in these last days. So this is, again, our parallel for these last seven plagues. Now, the Israelites, when these last seven plagues, this next one of the flies, did Israel leave Goshen? Did they leave Egypt yet? No. They were still there, but it did not affect them in the land of Egypt. They were protected, but they were still there. They didn't get poofed out. They didn't get delivered out before the plagues. They were still there until after the plagues, and then after the plagues is when God does his deliverance. And so then comes the flies, the fourth plague, and after the flies, the diseased cattle and livestock, and then after that, the boils upon the people, and hail, and locust, and darkness. And in all of these, no one died yet. I mean, unless you went out in a hailstorm. Right? You didn't have to die. Until the 10th plague, he brings in the Passover, tells the Israelites to paint the blood over the doorpost so that the angel of death would see your faith, see the blood, and pass over your homes. And that night, the death of the firstborn of all those who refused to believe. So both the Israelites, the Jews, and the Egyptians had an opportunity in those first nine plagues to see who is the Lord. Who are they going to choose? Who are they going to follow? And Egyptians who chose to believe and put the blood over their doorpost, their child was spared as well. So God is no respecter of persons. He's an equal opportunity employer. Hey, if they want to follow, anyone wants to follow, they are welcome to follow. And the same with Israel. If they chose not to put the blood over the doorpost, they chose not to believe, then their firstborn would die. And so, the parallel in Revelation of what's known as the seven last plagues that will affect this earth, there's many similarities in those. And the same point is we were in bondage, we were persecuted, we were um, um, harassed, and then God works his deliverance. And the same for today. We're, they, they were still in the land, they were still in Egypt, and even as Pharaoh, Moses came before Pharaoh and said, God said, let my people go, Pharaoh then made things worse. As it got more intense, Pharaoh got meaner and harder, and you still have to make the bricks, this time without us collecting straw for you. Get your own straw. And so, in the same in the last days, there'll be intense persecution, and then God works his deliverance. Because again, part of the purpose is to show that he is the Lord, and that he's able to protect his people, he's able to make a distinction between those that follow him and those who don't. 
He's able to say, flies, you can go everywhere, but don't go over that little area there. Hail everywhere, but don't go over that little area there. He is able, he is in control of everything. That He is the Lord. And so, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. This is the same we've seen over and over again in all of these chapters. This is the culmination, all the chapters, each, each section of Daniel, each section of Revelation takes us to God's final deliverance of his people as he takes us through this Last time of trouble, such as the world has never seen, worse than anything. So it's going to be bad, even while we're protected there and having God's protection over us. It's going to be bad, but it won't be like with the, those who resist God, those who are denying God, those who are not following God, will be receiving. So now to the text for tonight, starting in Revelation 15, verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. And so just as the, t the focus of the text, the focus of the chapter, the majority of verses in this chapter and the next verses is on the, the plagues that come upon those who receive the mark of the beast, God still remembers his people. And they're still mentioned here in contrast to it. That God's people, and this is the same people that are mentioned in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, similar terminology describing them, having the victory over the mark. And of course, if we have the victory over the mark and over his image and over the beast, in order to have the victory, you still got to be there. Right? There's no victory if you're not there. Right? You don't win the game and gain the if you don't show up. Right? So we gain the victory because we are there in the midst of it and still resist the mark of the beast and still resist the, the, his image and still resist the beast's threatenings and like, can't buy and sell and all this other stuff. And then here it mentioned that they sang the song, the special song that no one else can sing, and that here it's mentioned what that song is. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And so they sing this song in that they have experience, no one else can sing it, that no one else has seen God's final judgments upon the, on the world on the wicked, that his judgments are complete, that they've lived through that time, that they've seen it, they've experienced it, they have this special deliverance that takes place for them, seeing the Lord come in all of his glory. Again, every chapter, every section ends with that final deliverance. Verse 5, And after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls of 
full, bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So there's a lot there. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. That's a mouthful, right? The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. That's a fancy way of saying the holy place, right? So it's the tabernacle and the temple, right? So there was the temple and there was the tabernacle inside the temple and the testimony section of that where the ark of his testimony is, where his, his, his word is, where his Ten Commandments are, the testimony of God. Uh, and and it's, this is the heavenly one, so it's a, the holy place in heaven, and it's open. Now, when only in the earthly model was the holy of holies, the most holy place, opened that someone could go into it? On Yom Kippur, very good. On Yom Kippur, it's the only time of year, Yom Kippur, the day of judgment, the final day of judgment. And so again, we have the parallel, God working his final judgment, God sending out his angels out of the most holy place, coming out of there. And they're, they're dressed like the Kohanim on earth were dressed. Now, I don't know if the angels are dressed that way all the time, but here in this description, they're dressed like the Kohanim dressed, coming out, and they've got the seven bulls. It's the bulls, same word there as, as the, the, the bowl of incense, the, uh, with the altar of incense, which was right before the Holy of Holies. Uh, incense was placed into a, a censer, a bowl as well, and taken into the most holy place. And so, again, the symbolism there of the earthly sanctuary, the earthly temple mirroring what's taking place in heaven. So the incense, God's intercession, his intercession is now done. He has left the most holy place. He's come out and intercession has finished. There is no more intercession. There is no more, uh, the sanctuary has been cleansed. It's all complete. He's done. He's decided everyone who's had every opportunity, and he comes out of the holy, most holy place. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. So no one's going up into the holy place, the most holy place, no one's going into the temple. It's filled with smoke. It's filled with the glory of God. Kind of Solomon's temple was filled with the glory of God when he dedicated it. God's glory came down. So it says it's filled with the glory. And yet no one's able to come up. No one's able to enter in until the seven plagues are completed. So again, we're still here going through them. God taking us through them and protecting us. So that's all of that chapter. Chapter 15 is a short chapter. Eight verses in that chapter. It leads us right into chapter 16. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, go your way. And I was still the same temple, the heavenly temple, speaking from the heavenly temple. Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. This is the first plague. And there was a there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast. So specifically, not on those who have gained the victory, but on those who have received the mark of the beast. Now, whether these are literal or symbolic, I'm not sure. Either way is fine. Um, certainly God can have grievous sores come upon the people 
and distinguish it that way. But also this is still revelation and there's tons of symbolism being spoken here and imagery uh, being used here. And I doubt the, uh, you know, just one literal angel is with his little bowl and, and he's pouring it out, you know, and literally going through those motions. Uh, or if it's just God speaks and it is and done, um, uses angels to bring, again, pain upon those, a distinction between those. And uh, there were grievous sores, boils in the Egyptian, coming out of Egypt, Egypt plagues. And upon them which worship his image. Second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And so again, similar to the plague in Egypt, so here the seas become red, and whether that's literal or not, I don't know. You know, for all the seas of the, uh, of the whole world to become blood red, no doubt God could do that, but the stench, that's like, what, two-thirds of the world? Uh, so you have whales and every animal in there dying uh, and washing up on the sea. I don't know how much life would on earth would live uh, with that kind of a calamity, how long we could survive with that. But, uh, but again, the symbolism can be, again, blood upon them, that death is coming upon them. Uh, they become like blood, not just the, the seas, but all those who've received. Sea could be, again, multitude of people. We've seen that here in Revelation. Uh, and so that multiple, multiples of, multitudes of people are dying and because of the plagues that they're being punished. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of water, and they became blood as well. So again, now you've got rivers, you've got these seas, and you've got all the rivers and all the springs, everything turning to blood. Uh, again, life would not be able to live very long with that. Uh, and the plague in Egypt... God obviously stopped it fairly quickly. Each one of the plagues, Pharaoh said, stop and I'll let you people go. And the next day, they stopped. God stopped them. So here it doesn't mention them stopping. So again, I think it's the symbol symbolic, the symbolism, especially as we'll see, symbolism coming in more and more. But it uh, could be literal, and that's fine too. Nothing's impossible with the Lord. And then uh, heaven proclaims, Thou art righteous, O Lord, because thou hast judged thus. So while the world might be looking at this and saying, this is horrible, this is God, this is the wrath of God, God's supposed to be loving, why is God allowing this calamity to happen? Heaven says, this is just. This is right. God is righteous in doing this. He has judged correctly in allowing these plagues to take place. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. So again, if we weren't here, then how can we have our blood shed? Right? But there will be martyrs right up to this time. It won't be easy. Again, time of trouble such as the world has never seen. And just as they're shedding God's people's blood, God allows the plagues to come upon them and their blood is shed and they have to drink the blood, it says, and thou has given them blood to drink. The water becomes as blood. And again, whether that's literal or again, that uh, the symbolism there, either way. But we will be coming down to the end, and it'll again be a troublesome time, that's for sure. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men 
with fire. Well, sun, sun, uh, they've been worshiping the sun, and we see that in all the different kinds of things. You go to Bethlehem in Israel, and they say, this is where he was born, and what do they have there? They got a sun beam there. They go into Jerusalem, and you go to the place where they say he died, and this is where the, the, the cross was placed. And what's there? They got a sunbeam there. Right? And on the ceiling, on the top of the building, they got a sunbeam there as well, all over the place. And these sunbeams. So worshiping the sun, and so scorching, it's vile upon the sun, and scorch men with fire. And so however that, it does that, solar flares or... Uh, however he does that, if it's literal, scorching men, the ozone layer, whatever, it gets real intense heat, however he does it. But again, it's God's attack on what they've been worshiping, what they've been, the environment and, and the gods of this earth, the things of this earth, and in denial against God. And the men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, which has power over these plagues. So we're into the fourth or fifth plague here, and this is their response. Response is not repent, not, oh, okay, we've been bad, we've denied God, and uh, we've been resisting him, and so God help us. No, they blaspheme God. They don't say, oh, there's no God. They don't say, oh, this is, you know, global warming or, or whatever. They don't blame it on natural occurrences. They don't even blame it on other human beings. They don't blame it on the factories. They're blaming God. They blaspheme the name of God, which has power over these plagues. So there's an acknowledgement of God, but still a resistance to him. A refusal to surrender to him, to come to him. A defiance taking place. And that's, again, the purpose of the plagues. It's just to demonstrate their character. It's, again, another test. It's like uh, Adam and Eve. He tested Noah's time. God's testing. So it's a final test. How are they going to react? I've poured out blessings upon them. I've given them life. I've given them water. I've given them sun. I've given them air. I've given them a balance of all these things. I've given them trees of all kinds of variety, uh, food of all kinds of variety. And how do they react? Have they praised me? Have they thanked me for those things? No. Let's see how they will react if I take those things away. They blaspheme God. And they repented not to give him glory. So a refusal, a resistance, a repenting not. And then the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. Or he mentioned it something to the sun, and so then darkness is in the original plagues that took place on Egypt. And so a darkness over the seat of the beast. So over its foundation, over its support system, a darkness. And it can be a literal darkness. Again, it could have blocked out the sun. Or a spiritual darkness. God is light. His word is light. They rejected him. They've blasphemed him. They refused to repent. And so whatever little bit of Holy Spirit God was still pouring upon them, whatever light he was still trying to share upon him, he removes that. And he's pulling further away or they're pushing him further away and darkness comes on. Their mind becomes darker. They become even more evil. Even more wicked without the Holy Spirit's restraining power. And the light of intelligence. The light of common sense, the, the light of conviction and morality of any sort being pushed away and just darker and darker come their hearts and their minds, darker and crueler and even more resistant to God. So it could be that. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. 
Well, darkness doesn't cause literal pain, right? Unless he's talking about pain still because of the sun and because of the uh, sores and the grievous sores. But again, if it's lasting that long, then, then uh, no, no one would survive. But uh, whatever, they're still in pain. And maybe again, it's an internal pain uh, from uh, conviction still and knowing it's wrong and resisting more and more. Mental pain, the darkness. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And so fourth plague, fifth plague, still blaspheming God. The darkness takes place and they're still blaspheming God. And still repented not of their deeds. So nothing's helping them. Nothing's getting their attention. Nothing's waking them up. God's tried everything and they're still resistant. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Now when we get to the sixth plague here, sixth vial, we've seen this through the sixes, or the sevens rather, the seven congregations, the seven trumpets, the seven seals. Every time when we get to the sixth, it's taking us right to basically the end. Those were time periods taking us from the time of John all the way to the very end, but we get to the sixth time period and it takes us right up to the end and then basically the seventh is the end. And we'll see that same thing here. While the plagues are not going from John's day, they're focusing just on these last day events, they still all culminate at the very end at the coming of the Lord, the end of this earth as we know it. There's still more as eternity, but earth as we know it, the end um, Comes. And so this sixth plague takes us right to the events that lead to that seventh plague that ends it all. Just like, again, the other patterns. So what is this sixth plague, this drying up this on the great river Euphrates? Now, all the plagues so far we've seen have been upon those who have received the mark of the beast. And so it would make sense that the sixth plague would, plague would also be on those who have received the mark of the beast. Not uh, to help them, but to hurt them. And then the waters thereof were dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, the way this is commonly interpreted today, not historically, not traditionally, but today, as things have changed, the common teaching today is not the common teaching that it was 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. But the common teaching of today takes this and twists it totally upside down from its meaning. Because again, we've seen the plagues are not there to help those who have the mark of the beast, but against those who have been receiving the mark of the beast. But how it's commonly taught is that the plague dries up the great river Euphrates, and then the kings of the east China, Russia, whoever, come marching through, and now because the, the river is dried up, they're able to march through on dry ground and march through Euphrates River and come to Israel and attack Israel. Well, that would mean then this plague went to help them, help those who have the market and help them to attack Israel. Well, that's not a very good plague in my mind, right? That's a, a plague that's consistent with these other plagues that's punishing the wicked, it's helping out the wicked. So what is the reality of what's taking place here? What is this plague that dries up the Euphrates River 
that makes the way prepared for the kings of the east. Well, let's take a look. Where is the Euphrates River? So we'll go to a map, and uh, there's the Euphrates River, that red line going through the middle of Syria and Iraq. That's where the Euphrates River is. So China, China is not even on this map. China and Russia are so far over, it's not even on the map at all. So in order for China to attack and Russia to attack, they'd have to march all the way through Afghanistan and the mountains and the hills and the snow and the difficult terrain and desert areas, and same through Iran, through the deserts of Iran. They're marching their army, marching their army, marching their army, halfway through Iraq, and they come to the Euphrates River. And if God didn't dry it up, they wouldn't be able to make it. That's ridiculous. I mean, today, the United States you know, recently had a war in Iraq. And it was sending tanks across the Euphrates River. It wasn't a big obstacle. They got barges, and they just take all the equipment across. I mean, back even in World War II, the Allied forces brought all their army on D-Day across the English Canal. Chana uh, yeah, the canal. And I, I, I don't know which is wider or longer, but it didn't stop them. God didn't have to dry up the, the, the English Canal in order to get people from England to France. They got on boats. And they shipped the boats, and they opened the boats, and they went running out onto the, to the beaches and fought. And planes. And today, they don't need an army marching across from Russia and China to march against Israel. They fly there. Or they bring them in boats and bring them around to the Mediterranean Sea and dump them off that way. Or forget about this, send missiles. They don't need to march an army across Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and then Jordan in order to get to Israel. And certainly today, you don't need to dry up a river in order to be able to get your army across. They're able to march all that distance. A little river is not going to stop them. I mean, it's just totally ridiculous. That's on the first point of it. And again, the second point of it, right? Because the first point is God's not helping them out. That's not the purpose of it. His plagues are to show them that God's on his people's side, not on their side, not to help them out. So what is this Euphrates River? Well, again, we go to the Bible and Revelation and let it interpret it for us. Revelation 17, 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And of course, when it says tongues, it means languages. Right, so these different languages, these people, multitudes of people, these waters and rivers represent these multitudes of people. And so what is being dried up? Well, in order to understand that, we have to go to original Babylon, to where the Euphrates River originally was, and see what God did in the past to understand what he's going to do here in the future. So for that, we go to the book of Daniel, which again is a sister book to Revelation. And the city of Babylon's there, and there was the beautiful hanging gardens. They had the, in the middle of a desert, they had hanging gardens and all these fruit and all these trees and all this lush greenery. How'd they have that? Well, right through the middle of the city, the city was built right over the Euphrates River. So they had a continual water source going right through the river, right through the city. And even when Medo-Persians come and lay a siege to the city, and surround the city. No one can go in, no one can go out. They didn't care. They'd send their men up on top of the 
top of the uh, walls and throw lettuce or whatever, throw vegetables at the army out there. You guys are out there in the desert. We got all the food inside here. You're not going to starve us out. We can wait you out forever. We've got it all. We have no problem in here. They were literally partying inside. Belshazzar, the king, he held a party. I mean, who holds a party when your city is surrounded by an army? <laughs> They're partying inside. They're not worrying. They're not eating like other plagues, uh, sieges we read about in, in the Bible where they're eating donkey's heads and, and turtle dung, I mean, a, a dove a dung, and children. They're partying. They're eating, they're feasting, they're drinking. They're having a ball. Why? Because they have the river Euphrates going through. Literal one. So how, do they, how are they conquered? Handwriting comes on the wall. You read this in Daniel? That's why the stories of Daniel, not only the prophetic chapters, but the story chapters have prophetic implications. They were literal stories, but they have repeated symbolically in these last days. The handwriting on the wall, that's again the plagues, God saying you're judged. And that's what the word said. You've been judged, Babylon, and you're going to be replaced by the Medes and Persians. You've been found in the balances and found wanting. You've been judged. And that's what these plagues are, God's judgments, the wrath of God. Bringing an end to Babylon. There are two cities in Revelation. Babylon, and what's the other city mentioned in Revelation? The New Jerusalem, right? So you've got the New Jerusalem, and you have Babylon. Now, there's not a literal Babylon, but it's the symbolism, and the same with Euphrates River. It's the symbolism of what did it, what does it, rep what did it represent? It represented the source, the support for Babylon. And without it, they were wasted. So God's judgment, how has God's judgment come upon ancient Babylon? The Medo-Persians outside, their the ruler over the Persians, Cyrus, comes up with a plan. They dig this big reservoir. They divert the water upstream of the Euphrates River. They divert it into their reservoir. And slowly the water goes down and dries up. And they marched their army right in on the dry riverbed. Underneath the gates were left open, maybe because they were drunk inside, partying, or however. They marched right in, and overnight the city is taken, hardly without a battle. Just go in, they're inside now, and they're able to fight, and they just wipe them out. The king's drunk, and the leaders are there. They just go in and wipe them out. The war is not even hardly talked about, it's just it's over. That quick, that easy. And amazingly, God prophesied about this 150 years in advance. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, Thus says the Lord, I will dry up your rivers. That says of Cyrus, way before he was born, names him by name, that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, Moshiach, Messiah, to his anointed, to Cyrus, to open for him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. And they weren't shut. And also, I didn't put the text in, but it says that, and Cyrus will allow us to go, he will be, rebuild Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Cyrus did. Exactly what was prophesied. He dried up the rivers, he went marching in, the gates were left open, and as God's shepherd, as God's Messiah, he delivers God's people and lets us go back to Jerusalem. 
So that's what literally happened with a literal Euphrates River, with a literal Babylon. And it's interesting in the parallels, Cyrus was king. Cyrus is called God's shepherd. He's called God's anointed, God's Messiah. He came from the east. He destroys Babylon and he sets God's people free. Who is he symbolic of? Why did God call him a shepherd and is a Messiah? Because who was he symbolizing in that way? The Messiah is sure to come. Who's God's king? Who's king of kings and lord of lords? He's God's shepherd. He shepherds his people. He guides his people. He collects his people. One fold brings us together. He is the good shepherd. He's God's Messiah. He comes from the east. As lightning comes from the east and cometh to the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He comes, and when he comes, he destroys Babylon. And in destroying Babylon, he sets God's people free. And so that's the symbolism there, and that's what he's saying is going to happen at the end. Now, literal Euphrates River, literal Babylon, there is no literal Babylon, but the symbolism of what it is, the drying up and making, preparing the way for the kings of the East. Who's the kings of the East? What is this battle talking about? Well, Revelation 16 uh, continues and says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming up out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So it mentions these three frogs. And again, does this sound literal? Is there a literal dragon that literally has a frog? Or I don't know if it's three frogs out of each one, nine frogs total, or one frog out of each of the dragon, the beast, and the prophet, false prophet. But whatever the case, is there going to be a literal dragon that's spewing out frogs and a literal beast? Or is this the symbolism? And a false prophet. Well, who are these? Well, we know who the dragon is. The dragon's the devil. We know who the beast is. You guys identified it in Revelation 13, the first beast. The false prophet is the second beast that supports the first beast. And you guys identified that him as well. So it's the same players, again, Revelation just repeating itself, repeating itself, repeating itself. And then what's this coming out of their mouths? Well, it comes out of, what's, the, what's a frog use as its weapon? Its tongue. It zaps its fly and it sucks it in, right? It's got this fast tongue. And coming up out of the mouth, coming out of the mouth, this is lies. Out of the tongue, they're the lies, the lying deception upon the world. So out of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. It's a false prophet. He's false. He's, got false. He's interpreting prophecy falsely and deceiving the whole world and taking these prophecies and twisting them all upside down, putting a 2,000-year gap in there where there should be no gap, saying that between the 69th week and the 70th week of the prophecy is 2,000 years. How can you have a, a, a 2,000 years between a, a week? You're counting. You teach your kids to count. 66, 67, 68, 69, 2,000, <laughs> and then 70. False prophecies, twisting it all upside down, throwing it all into the future. Oh, don't look at me, don't look at the, don't go with the interpretation of who the beast is. Can't be, the beast is not until the future, and you're not going to be here anyway. You're not going to have to experience any pain, you're not going to have to experience any suffering. You're just going to be delivered out of here. False prophecies, false interpretation, lies coming out of the mouths. You'll have a second chance anyway. You don't make it on the first try. Lies, deceptions to deceive God's people and to put us to sleep. 
And that's why we are asleep. And that's why the warning's not going out. For out of their mouths come these false prophecies. For they are spirits of devils working miracles. Miracles generally attributed to God. So they're working miracles. Again, this is not a, a denial of God. Not saying not a prophet, a false prophet with false miracles, deceiving the world with their deception and their lies and their sorcery and their mixture of truth mixed with error. Spirits of devils coming out of the dragon and deceiving, probably even deceiving the leaders, most of the leaders, self-deceived or satanically deceived because Satan is sending out this false lies and false spirit which go forth onto the kings of the earth and the whole world. The whole world becomes deceived. All in this big deception in support of Babylon. But then God dries it all up. The support of Babylon gets dried up. And we'll see that, not tonight, but in another part in Revelation. They don't have much left. The whole chapter talks about the kings and the merchants and, and the business and all the supporters of Babylon. They turn on Babylon. They lose their support network. And as they lose their support network, that brings down the fall of Babylon. Just as the Euphrates River was dried up, its support system was dried up, and then it fell. And thus the kings of the east, the Medo-Persians, are able to come in. And so at the end, the drying up of the support system, the revealing, they turn on their lies, they see the lies have been lies, and the kings of the earth, they turn on them. They don't turn to God. They just turn on each other, and then they have an infighting. So what's described, and again, we'll see that. And it prepares the way for the kings of the east. Who is the kings of the east? We'll see here in another minute. And gather them to battle to the great day of God Almighty. All right, so that's the purpose, right? So there's deception, all the kings that bring it forth, this great final day of battle, the great day of God Almighty. Right? It's not the battle between China and Russia and these others coming and attacking Israel. It's not their great battle. It's God's battle. It's God's great day. It's God Almighty's great day. It's his battle. He's calling the shots. Not China and Russia calling the shots against Israel or anyone else. It's God calling the shots. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon or Armageddon. Why is it called Armageddon or Armageddon? The key there is it says in the Hebrew tongue. In other words, it's symbolic. It's just, you have to understand it in the Hebrew tongue in order to understand it. And what is it in the Hebrew tongue? What does it mean? Armageddon, right? Megiddo or Megiddon, the city was there, but Har, again, two words, Har, Megiddo, Har, Megiddo. Har in Hebrew is the word for mountain. So mountain of Megiddo. Mountain of Megiddo, that's what the word means. That's why you need to know it in the Hebrew. That's why it says, this is the clue, this is the key. In the Hebrew tongue, not in English, not in any other language, in the Hebrew, mountain of Megiddo. So let's go to Megiddo. 
ancient Megiddo. There it is there. Some of us have been there. Right? There it is. That's the whole thing right there. This thing right in this triangle of these roads here. Right there. Right? That thing right there in the middle. That's the whole entire thing. That's about the size of the hospital here, including the parking lot, right, to the property of the, of the, uh, of the local hospital here. And what's the local hospital? What, six, seven stories high? How high does it go? Not much, right? Six, seven stories max. That's about the height of this. Is that a mountain? Or would you say the hospital is a mountain? <laughs> I mean, maybe Florida standards, that might be a mountain. That's not a mountain. It's a city built on a city. It's built on a city on a city. Almost 20 civilizations wanted that spot and continually fought over that spot. And every time someone won, they knocked down the walls, the houses, everything fell down, so they built on top of that. And the next one comes, they knock their wall down, they build on top of that. And that's how it gets to the height it is. And it's, again, not much of a height at all. It certainly is not a mountain. There is no mountain of Megiddo. That's where the symbolism in the Hebrew tongue, mountain, it's going to take place in the mountain of Megiddo, and there is no mountain of Megiddo. They say it's going to take place, the Bible calls it the plain of Megiddo. As you see in the background, this is a big Jezreel valley, or the valley of Megiddo. It's this valley. And it's really not that big. You can see across it on all sides. It's not that big at all. Certainly not big enough for all the kings of the earth to gather in it. And there's no mountain there. So what is it talking about? Well, again, we have to know what the Bible tells us about Megiddo. Solomon had stables there. Why do these 20 civilizations want that one spot? That's like unheard of. So many over the same exact spot. Why that spot? Well, there's a water source there. You see here, this is a, a big hole. And you can climb down their stairs, and we do that. We go down the stairs, and it takes you down to the spring right here. The spring is tunneled under, and so the water comes from the spring and goes down to the bottom of the... And they're able to get a water source inside. So there was water there. But that's not the only reason. More important reason, they wanted it because whoever controlled Megiddo controlled everything, controlled the region. And so again, we need a map. So there is Megiddo. And you see all these red roads and the three main thick roads, Jerusalem down here. So if you're coming from the west, today's Europe, and you're taking a land route and you're wanting to go to Africa, to Egypt and trade in Africa, you almost have to go through Megiddo. The only other way is go up through Haifa and bypass it a little bit, but otherwise you have to go through Megiddo. Or if you're coming from Africa and want to go towards today's Europe, you have to go through Megiddo. And the same for the East. If you're coming from Babylon or you know, today's Asia, you're coming from that area, Syria, you're coming, you can't come across the desert, so you'd have to go over the crescent, crescent, fertile crescent, that's how Abraham came, that's how Babylon came and attacked, always up through the north and then came down through Galilee. And the only other way to get down to Jerusalem and down to Egypt would be to take the Jordan Valley Road. Then you still got to cross the mountains through Jerusalem, and so it's a lot easier to cut across the plains and cut through Megiddo. 
But maybe if you stop in Jerusalem, you take the Jordan Valley Road. But if you're tradesmen, you're going to go through Megiddo. So no matter what direction to connect Asia, Europe, and Africa, these three continents, you have to go through Megiddo. And you put up a toll booth there, right? So if you control, you put up a toll booth, and you decide who's coming in and who's going out. And you're controlling trade, you're controlling commerce. And we see that in the Bible. Uh, Egypt was attacking the, the, the Assyrians. Necho, I think, was the, the king of Egypt, and, and uh, Josiah, I think, was the king of Israel. He was a good king. And he decided to get in the middle of the fight. He decided to stop it. And the king of Egypt says, no, get out of the way. You're not in this battle. It has nothing to do with you. Leave me alone. Let me go and fight with them. And he said, no, no, no. He went and fought. He got in the mix, and he got killed in Megiddo. And other kings died at Megiddo. Yeah, it was a controlling point. That's why it was so key. That's why everyone wanted it. You have that, you control the whole region. And that's the point here. Whoever wins the final battle, the mountain of battles, controls the universe. In this final battle between God and Satan, not between China and Russia and Israel, but between God and Satan, that's the battle, the dragon and the lamb. Whoever wins that battle, just like at Calvary, whoever won when Yeshua was here, that's why Satan went so hard. The final battle. Satan's going to, this is, no, this is death. This is it. He's fighting to the death. And whoever wins this controls the universe. Because this earth has become the key to the rest of the universe, as far as God's concerned. This is where he has his people that he's delivering, that he's working to save that he left heaven and came to this earth. This has become the battleground. This is where Satan has been relegated. And so the battle for the universe is taking place, not in a little small valley that no way can fill, again, all the people. Again, you can see all the way across it. But this earth becomes the battleground. This mountain of battles. This chief battle, the battle of mountain, the battle of the war to end all wars. The ultimate war between God and Satan. The ultimate conflict. That's what this is symbolizing here. This final battle. And to prepare the way for that, the support system gets dried up. And prepares the way. And God describes this final battle in Revelation 19. 19 starting in verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who's that? That's Yeshua. Yeshua coming on his horse to judge. Here again, it's a judgment scene. There's a judgment time. And he's judging, he's bringing his judgments, and he comes and he's making war. This final war, this final battle. And, his, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who are those? His angels. So the drying up of the Euphrates River prepares the way for the kings of the east. For Yeshua the king and his under kings, his angels, his people to come with him and his army to come with him. 
This is who is being prepared for. This is the battle. This is the ones, not China and Russia. Yeshua and his kingdom and all of heaven emptying out to come and fight, not against Israel, but against the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and all those who've received the mark of the beast. Not coming to fight against God's people, but to deliver God's people. Again, the plague on the Euphrates River is not to help the beast, but against the beast. Dries up its support system. The river is dried up, so now the war is now easy. And so Yeshua comes with all his angels, and now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Out of the dragon, out of the beast, and out of the false prophet. They've got something coming out of their mouth. They've got frogs coming out of their mouths. Lies coming out of their mouths. And out of Yeshua's mouth, a sharp sword. What's that sharp sword? Again, it's symbolism, but what does the Bible tell us that sharp sword is? The word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword. So the truth, God's truth coming out of his mouth against their lies. And the kings now and the merchants, and they all turn on the beast. They turn on spiritual Babylon. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. That's the phrase we've been reading in Revelation 16 on these plagues. The wrath of God Almighty. And here again, so the parallel. Again, the Revelation just repeating itself, repeating itself. 16, now in chapter 19, same type of thing. So it's preparing the way for this final battle, this final war. Yeshua coming on, on his horse with all of his angels, coming and doing battle and winning the battle. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. That in a nutshell is Armageddon, right there. Yeshua and his angels coming, and the beast, and the dragon, and the kings of the earth, the, those that receive the mark of the beast, fighting against, resisting, blaspheming, trying to persecute God's people, and Yeshua comes in and delivers. Again, the Egypt experience. God parts the Red Sea, not so that the kings of China and Russia can come through. He parts the Red Sea so God's people can come through. And they resist. The Pharaoh still doesn't wake up after 10 plagues. And now this miracle, the Red Sea parting. And he sends his army in after that. Doing war against God's people. Doing war against God. And what does God do? He closes in the river and drowns them. And so Yeshua comes and wins the battle. And that's how it ends. So back to Revelation 16. The next thing after that is the seventh plague. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of heaven, out of the temple in heaven, saying from the throne, saying, it is done. That's it. It's done. So that's the seventh plague. It's done. So the sixth plague prepared the way for the seventh plague, the finishing of it. And we saw that again with the seven trumpets, the seven seals. The sixth one comes, and then the seventh one, it's over. And so the battle is over. It's been prepared. Everyone has seen. Everyone has made their decision. They don't repent. They blaspheme in God. But they turn on themselves, not in repentance. It's all dried up. And then Yeshua comes, and it's over. It's finished. He said it was finished on Calvary. 
And that aspect of our salvation was finished. But he says it's finished again, it's done again, a second done, a different done. His final deliverance, his physical deliverance of his people. Spiritual deliverance and now physical deliverance of his people. He comes on the clouds and as we read in Revelation 14, he sends in his sickle and he harvests his people, takes us to the place he's preparing for us, to the new Jerusalem. The dead in Messiah rise first and we which are alive get caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Separates the sheep, brings us to his barns. The wheat brings it to his barns. The good fish puts it in his vessels and then reaps again, the sickle and again, and destroys the wicked, crushes the grapes, burns the tares, destroys the wicked. His deliverance simultaneously taking place. Again, just like out of Egypt. Deliverance and judgment. And so he comes, it is done. The seventh plague. He finishes it off. And the sixth plague prepared the way for it. So the kings of the east is, again, not Russia and China. They take that twisted all. It's, it's God and his angels coming. And coming from the east, like lightning coming from the east, shining to the west. His deliverance coming. Coming on the clouds with all of his angels with him. And doing his deliverance. And winning the battle, the mountain of battles, and his final deliverance of this earth. And there were voices and thunders and lightning and there was a great earthquake and every island fled away and the mountains were not found and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven and every stone about a weight of talent and men blasphemed God. So even in the final one, the final deliverance is still blaspheming God because of the plague of the hail and the plague thereof was exceedingly great. Down to the very end, they repent not. And he cried, Revelation 18, verse 2, he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. So the final destruction of Babylon, the final drying up, the final destruction of the wicked, down to the very moment of their destruction, they're crying out and blaspheming against God. Through the fourth plague, the fifth plague, and the seventh plague, they're blaspheming God, seeing him coming on the clouds, still blaspheming God. And Babylon falls. And Revelation 18, verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Least you share in her sins and least you receive her plagues. So now the one again, chapter, chapter 16 says the plagues. Well, chapter 18 he says, Don't receive her plagues. So again, it's not chronological, but it's cyclical. It goes into another repeating itself. Now is the time to come out of Babylon. Not then. The deception will be overwhelming in the midst of the time of trouble, being forced not to be able to buy or sell, troublesome time, persecution, martyrs, death, and taking our blood, killing us. Now is the time to make the decision. Now is the time to come out of confusion. That's what Babylon means. Come out of Babylon, come out of the confusion of the world, come out of the false, the false theology of the world, and walk in God's light, walk in God's truth, so that we don't receive the plagues, so that we receive the seal of God, that we receive the love of God, that we receive the forgiveness of God, that we follow the Lamb, that we receive His mercy, that He sets us free from sin, that He sets us free from rebellion against Him. 
makes a choice now because then it'll be too late. So what about these plagues? What happens to God's people during these plagues? Isaiah 33, verse 16. Your bread shall be given him, his water shall be sure. Now, that's not a lot, bread and water. <laughs> that's like Elijah at the brook there during the drought. God provided a raven bringing little pieces of bread to him. God will provide bread. It might be little pieces that the little bird has to bring us. And a river, a little river, brook or whatever. He'll provide water and bread. But not feasting. Won't be like now. Won't have tons of restaurants to choose from and tons of supermarkets and tons of food to choose from. We'll still be able to told, you can't buy or sell. And they'll enforce that as much as they can, but God will provide enough to sustain us. And in Psalm 91.1, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. What's the secret place of the Most High? What's God's secret place? The Holy of Holies. Where only one day a year, only one person was allowed in to see. It's his secret place. Dwelling there, dwelling in our hearts, in our minds, coming boldly before the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Coming before him, dwelling with him. Shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. What's this shadow? And he shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. What wings? What, did God bird? What, what's these wings? that we're being covered under. In the Holy of Holies, the two angels have their wings covering the mercy seat. They're abiding with God, dwelling with God, coming so close to God, seated at his right hand, sealing with God, dwelling with him, abiding with him in heart, in mind, in character, under his angels' wings, under his protection, on his mercy seat. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Again, truth in comparison to the lies and the falsehoods. His truth, his truth and righteousness mingling together, his Ten Commandments there. You shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day. We won't be afraid. Not because we won't be here, <laughs> but we won't have to be afraid. Why? nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. It'll be a troublesome time. A thousand shall fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come nigh you. Right at our right hand, right at our side. Again, we won't be poofed out, we'll be here. But it won't affect us, the plagues won't affect us. Again, a troublesome time. It'll be so much pressure, not being able to buy or sell, pressure to conform. Look at all the world is doing this. All the world, look at this. You're bringing the calamities. You're the ones that are bringing the calamities because you're disobeying our laws. They think they're doing God's service. Tremendous pressure. Small group, small minority. Life made harder, lose our jobs. I'm going to make bricks without straw. Tons of pressure. Our family members pressuring. I'm seeing some family members, loved ones, following the beast. All the world following the beast. 
and the devil bringing guilt, bringing back to our minds all the areas where we've sinned in the past, trying to bring us down. And just as he accused Yeshua, if you be the Son of God, then why are you starving out here for 40 days? You look horrible. You look weak. You look terrible. You don't look like a son of God. You don't look like a child of God. If you really are the son of God, then God will provide for you. Turn these rocks into bread. Show your power. Show your might. If you really are following God, if you really are his chosen ones, then why is it so bad for you right now? Why are you suffering so? Why aren't you going along with everyone else? Not everyone in the whole world could be wrong. Who made you the only right ones? Tons of pressure, mental pressure. And you think you're so good. Well, you remember when you did that? You remember when you thought that? Satan will bring it all up to our memory, pressuring us and pressuring us. And we'll have to stand by faith. Faith on the God's truth. Faith on the word of God. So protect us from the plagues. But it won't be an easy time. He who endures to the end shall be saved. It says indoors, it's not going to be easy. Here is the patience of the saints. Those who have the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. If it takes patience, then it's going to be trial and tough. And it takes patient endurance to make it through to the end. But God will hold us. God is faithful. He will provide for us and he will see us through. Just as he saw Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah just as he saw Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel, he will see us through. He will take us through. Hold fast to the end. Only with your eyes you will see and behold and see the reward of the wicked. So we'll see it. They'll fall by our side. We will see it. We'll see the difference that God places between those that follow him and those who don't. Because you have made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, your habitation. Not just a mental belief, but that we live with God. 24-7, he lives within our hearts. We live within him. We abide together. Because we have chosen him. There shall no evil before you, neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. God will protect us, just like he protected us in Goshen. Wherever we're scattered, whether put in prisons or hiding in mountains or wherever we are, God's protection will be over us. He will sustain us, and we'll see him come on the clouds of glory with his deliverance to take us home. For he shall give his angels charge over us you. Just as he did for Elijah, he will do for us. Under his wings, we find our peace. He will see us through to the end. But now is the time to choose. Now is the time to come out of Babylon. Now is the time to come out of the falsehood and the confusion of this world. Now is the time to stop twisting things upside down and to see things as God has laid them out for us piece by piece by piece. Rightly identifying the Lamb and following Him all the way. Having faith in Yeshua and having His commandments. 
rightly identifying the false, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, coming out of the confusion of this world, the lies of this world, walking in God's light, and warning the world. And so tonight as we prepare to pray, if you've never accepted Yeshua as your Messiah, if you haven't received his forgiveness and his cleansing power and his transforming power, then the moment when we pray, I invite you to surrender all now. Again, it'll be so much harder later, maybe almost impossible later. Now is the time when you have peace and safety and are able to make an intelligent decision with your heart and your mind and your soul. Choose him and choose to follow him. Be prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Walk with him now. Choose him now. Secondly, if you've already done that and you want to recommit your life to him, then do so. Thirdly, if there's any area of Babylon still in your life, any area of this world, you love the Lord, you're serving him, but there's also some areas or just one area where you're still following a, some sin, some area, some rebellion you're still holding on to, some area you know is wrong and you're still doing it anyway, or you know you should be doing and you're refusing to do. Surrender that to the Lord. Come out of Babylon. Come out of the confusion. Come out of the sin. Or if there's confusion in your mind, you want God's truth to illuminate you. And in the moment when we pray, ask God to give you his light and his understanding to rightly discern and to follow him. And last, God wants us and he's called us to warn this world. We need his spirit for that. We need his power. We need to be sealed with God. We need the seal of God. We need the power of God to send us forth to warn this world before it's too late. That's why the blood was over the doorpost so everybody could see it. God wants to send us forth and warn the world. And if you want to do that, join with God's army, join with God's people and warn the world. And in a moment when we pray, ask God to give you his spirit to do that very thing. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we're thankful that you're not going to let the wickedness continue forever, that you will bring your judgments, and even in love and mercy, in trying to warn them one last time, and to demonstrate one last time to all the universe, no matter what you do, blessings or curses, their result will be the same, the denial of you. Thank you that you will work your deliverance. Thank you that you will save us. Thank you that you will spare us. We choose you now. Cover us in that sacrifice you already provided for us. And hold us fast and deliver us to the end. Give us the ability to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of darkness and death and to come out on your side. And use us in warning this world in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.